All right, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 163 with my guest and good friend, Sandra Brodigam. Uh Sandra and I met at The Ohio State University in 1998, yes, almost 22 years ago. And Sandra um, was in the band program um, with me. She was in a music education program, uh, which is what I was majoring in as well at Ohio State. And then I ended up transferring to go to the University of Akron. Sandra um, became a public school music teacher in New York City. And we've since reconnected, uh, and long story short, I smashed a lawn chair in her backyard. So uh, we talk about that a bit, but I hope you enjoy this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Sandra Brodigan. There we go. Hey. Hey. Um, okay. Well, I'm rolling here. You can hear me okay? Yeah. Fantastic. Um, all right. Sandra Brodigan, am I saying that correct? Yeah, Brodigan. Brodigan. Sorry, I'm seriously going to study it now. No, it's good. I like my listeners and watchers to be on the verge of nausea when they're doing a podcast. So people, you, people usually love that. Don't you don't. They? They, they, it's hard to realize that you're doing this podcast from a schooner. You're on. This, you're on. This, you're on the open sea. So it's a little, a little uh, choppy. It's one of my hobbies. <laughs> Schooning. Schooning is one of my hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sandra Brodigam, um, I as you were text, we were texting a little bit earlier before this. Um, I still have you in my phone as Sandra Donzi, so I apologize. That's okay. It's just uh, I, I, can't, I am. I can't. I knew you. I knew you when, and I can't let it go. You know, I'm a. You did know me when. <laughs> I'm a simple man. That's Sandra. a. That's a when, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, just so folks have an idea of like why you and I know each other, um, you know, and in, in, it's kind of random that you moved to New York, and I happened to land in New York. Um, we met once, like we went to Ohio State together for two years. We played, in the, we were in the marching band sort of scene, overlapping. We were in the school of music. You were good friends yeah. with um, uh, Rudy Rohan, who was a percussionist at at um, Ohio State. And we just mm-hmm. sort of hung out a bunch, and um, and then we graduated. We all went about our separate ways. I transferred, and then I we cro- the next time we crossed paths was um, like I don't have a question here, Sandra, other than I want folks to get to know you. Um, but I sat in a very old wooden chair in your backyard. <laughs> yes, and blew it. Thank to God s- you're opening with this story. Blew it to smithery. It's called concert honesty. So I just figure I always like to start with something brutally sad about my past. Um, and I sat in this thing and like an episode of Family Guy, it just was just like, poof, like this chair just burst. And it was, you invited me over so sweet. You're like, all oh, my friends are coming over in my backyard. I was a total stranger and the fat guy sits in the wooden chair and blows it out. And I just got up and left. I don't even think you I didn't. stayed. I was just like, Sandra, I'm out. Like, it's like, it's exactly what Rudy would have done. He would have just been like, gotta go. <laughs> Yep. So, um, <laughs> I would I would be surprised if Rudy wouldn't say "gotta go." <laughs> <laughs> but it was the most awkward uh, moment I think in my life. Actually, of all the times I've been on stages and played poorly, I feel like that moment for me was a real humbling, probably the most humbling moment in my life. But now you are a you teach music in the New York City public schools. And, I do, and <laughs> um, you have you sort of overlapped it with a composer named Viet Quang, who so has random like just it's amazing to me the the times we've overlapped without any effort on our behalf, and I kind of am glad to reconnect with you. So, Sandra Brodigam, all of that said, um, I kind of you know the world's on fire in many different ways, and I kind of am of two minds. We can talk about whatever you want today, but also. Okay. Um, we can wall this off as a safe place to just get to know you um, and not have to address any of the the 
the horrors going on in the world. So, um, can we do um, choice D, all of the above? Is yeah, we okay? can. We can do everything. I don't care. But but let's start just a little bit of background about yourself. Like, who are you? Where'd you come from? And, and why are you doing what you're doing? Okay. Um, well, I used to be Sandra Donzi. That's right. And um, I kind of I kind of grew up in. I was born in Georgia, and my family moved to Ohio when I was in middle school. So I kind of spent half of my childhood in Georgia and half of it in Ohio. Mm-hmm. In the Cleveland area, um, which is like two different countries entirely. Um, that was my experience, at least. Um, I was band geek in school and just, I mean, I was band president and I was, you know, into all of the arts, of course. But I figured out pretty early in high school that I just wanted to never not be in band. And so my goal was to become a high school band director. That was my dream in life. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, I'm actually the first person in my family to go to college. No kidding. Um, and yeah, I'm the oldest of three. What do your um, folks do? Well, it's, it's interesting. So my dad, my dad has done many things over the years. He was a franchisee for Domino's pizza for a long time. Um, started as a driver. Um, and so, but he, he's always been a composer. Mm. He's always had music in him that he's written and he plays low brass instruments. Euphonium is his main. And he, uh, you know, he's always played in community bands and he's always been engaged in music in many ways. So he ended up actually starting a music publishing company that <laughs> then became a much bigger music publishing company. So I was kind of like in the, in the realm of, um, musicians all of my life, mm-hmm. um, my mom works, she's a dietitian in a hospital, um, but she's also musical. So it's definitely from both sides. Okay. Uh, um, so yeah, I went to Ohio state to get a music education degree and I was, you know, like I had to work really hard to be in the flute studio there, which is, you know, a very, very rigorous studio. Catherine Borsch Jones is an institution and mm-hmm. I am so thankful every day that I was able to study with her. You mentioned her name, um, I think every five minutes when we were hanging out, like there was always like all roads <laughs> led to Catherine Borsch Jones, I think in every discussion. They kind of do. Yeah, they do. <laughs> like we'd go to a bar and you'd be like, you remember that time Catherine Borsch Jones drank a beer? And I'm like, yes, Sandra, <laughs> I do. <laughs> she's amazing. I'm sure. <laughs> she is. She's kind of a mom, but she's also just like, you know, a soldier and a great, you know, she's Mm. a, she's an activist. She's a flute activist, Mm. um, in every way. So anyway, I, you know, I went through her studio and I got this music education degree and I wanted to get it very early on in, um, you know, I've always been really interested in politics. I've always been really interested in inequality. Mm. Um, my high school years were pretty poor in my family. Um, you, you like, so, socioeconomically like, poor, you mean? Yeah, there, we had. Uh, yeah, there was. It, it was a really hard time financially for my family, mm-hmm. so there was no college fund. I actually mm-hmm. took a year off in between high school and college to save money so mm-hmm. that I could go to state school. On a, you know, I had Pell Grant, and some scholarship money, and I had state grants. So, I mean, I'm definitely a product of, you know, like public education can move you through. Um, wherever your dreams will take you if you work hard enough that has been my experience well and and, and so, just to say like just some for some context like um ohio state at the time you and i were there was like anywhere between like seven and eleven thousand dollars a year total and that was with 
That was with room and board. Right. That yeah. was everything. That um, was like your bill was going to be $12,000 at the end of the year or whatever that was. And that not that and that's not a small amount of money at all, but it's also not But it is a huge amount of money. It is compared to today. Right. Yeah, you know, it's Yeah. It's crazy today. I think tuition my freshman year just tuition was a little under 4,000. Yeah. You know, then you have books and yeah, everything on top of it, but it was something that you could afford, you know, even if you were like me where you had literally nothing from your parents, but you just, you know, waited tables and worked in a, you know, did landscaping and whatever. I painted houses, did all kinds of stuff. So, um, yeah, I basically early on, I figured out that I wanted, I knew I wanted to teach in either a rural district or an urban district because I just, it was, just, I could see like that those are the those are the kids who don't have something or have very little, right? It is, so it is, let I me mean, go some. It's interesting. I'm sorry to interrupt, Sandra, but you mentioned that like politics has always been on your mind, um, and uh, it's interesting to me. Like I didn't ever start really thinking about politics. Like we, you and I, never talked about politics in school. Like we were too. I guess. I mean, maybe I was. You were. Maybe I was too young and stupid, and you were just like, I'm not even going to waste my time on that dumb dumb. But <laughs> yeah, that's probably what. It was. Yeah. But but uh, but you know we didn't. I mean, I made plenty of fart jokes too. Like, <laughs> You know, <laughs> you can be an activist and be, make fart jokes too. Um, but yeah. um, for you, do you think going into music education? It's interesting to me that you 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 pointed out the, like the rural and the urban thing because I I have been a lot of the conversations I've been seeing going on just a, a, around all the issues of inequality. The word class gets brought up very little, um, and you I didn't grow up in a poor family, but I grew up in a class of a class of people that from a very rural community where resources didn't quite trickle down the way they did to sort of like, if you were in, uh, Gahanna outside of Columbus, you know, Columbus, yeah. you know and, and, you know, and there's those huge school districts right around Columbus that I wasn't even aware of were a thing. And you go and it's just like, this is like a college campus. This is yeah. better than Ohio state. Like, you know, in a lot of ways, yeah, in a lot of ways, those suburban schools are better than college campuses. Yeah, and so um, I'm curious for you, like, was it was getting into education, was it something politically that you were like, this is a way for me to fix something? Or were you just like, what What was it about that? Very much so. Um, for me, it was like, <laughs> look, I don't want to paint myself as some, you know, I didn't have it that hard. Sure, I yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. I definitely was hungry many times. I definitely had, you know the fear of losing our home all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and I definitely was the oldest of three who had to work a full-time job basically mm -hmm. to help put food on the table. Um, for me, that was the political, um, that was what made it political for me because, you know, I was angry and I didn't want, I didn't want to live that way. And I didn't want to have, you know, like my children someday live that way. And I yeah. didn't want to see other kids, anybody else go through that. I had no idea how bad, you know, the other America or other versions of America could be at that point. But I just saw it as like, this is my only ticket out. I ain't got no rich uncle, you know, I don't have um, any kind of a fund that's waiting for me there. I'm going to have to do this on my own. And so I just felt like knowledge is power and education is going to be the only way that I can do this. So if I work really hard at this one free shot, so that was my whole thing. It was like, I, if this is one thing that I can give to kids mm -hmm. that, you know, it's like, it should be education, public education should be the equalizer. It should be the place where we all come to, where we get all the information and we're empowered with it to then pursue whatever it is our path, you know, will be 
And so I just felt like that was the reason I wanted to be in education mm. was to, yeah, to empower people of any kind of background. But then, you know, things, you know what I think it was is you and I were at OSU our first two years. And I think what really got me involved was the 2000 election. Mm. And I guess, um, you know, then, you know, and then not long after was then there were then there was 9-11 and then the Iraq war began and yeah. all of those things. I just got whisked into a movement of taking to the streets and, and anyway, but it all became, it all showed me that like, I wanted to be involved in this, you know, pursuit of trying to, to give children access and, you know, we would go in our music education classes largely to um, suburban schools or really nice looking city schools. And I just, when I got to the end of my undergrad and they were asking me where I wanted to teach, student teach, I said, well, put me in a city school, put me in an urban district, you know, as urban as you can make it. And, um, you know, I got into a school that was as urban as it could be in, in Columbus, Ohio, and that has an affiliation with Ohio state. And then I was, I was, you know, I'd been married. I got married during college mm -hmm. to, uh, to a guy who was doing a finance degree and he was offered a position at um, bank one in Chicago. So right after college, he got this job there and I was like, sure, I'll go to any city and we can do this. And so I applied for a job in Chicago public schools and started teaching there. And that was, uh, of real education in itself. Well, what was um, the, I mean, um, you don't need to go into like super, super, super detail, but what was the, how was your teaching changed by teaching? I didn't realize that you taught in Chicago. Um, mm -hmm. How, what, what was the biggest sort of like uh, worldview change on your, what the things you, you preconceived about what you wanted to teach, how you wanted to teach, how you thought people were going to receive your teaching, like all of the ideals that we all have when we're like right out of college and I'm going to do it. Like, yeah, I, it's really hard for me when I see students now of mine leave the nest and have to struggle with that dissonance, that friction that comes from meeting the real world and not, not, I'm not advocating for the way the real world always works. It's just sometimes the real world gives you friction where you don't want, where you'd least expect it. And for you, I'm curious, Absolutely. how, what was that for you when you, when you first started teaching? Well, the biggest Gosh, there were so many shocks. I mean, I think, yeah, you're right. Like, that's the way it is for anybody who goes, you know, the first time into the real world. Um, the biggest surprise shock for me was the resources that were available. And I came, I mean, the the school that I went, my high school was not well funded. I mean, my, my community was also rural and did not pass a school levy for like 12 years, 13 mm -hmm. years, they took away busing, everything became pay to play. Like we had no, we had very few resources, but I'm talking about, <laughs> I got hired at a job at a school the week before school, I was asking, Hey, um, how many kids are going to be in each of my classes? Where's my classroom going to be? Can I have a key to that room? <laughs> like the and week, then the when week I, before the week before and Josh the first day of school, I didn't have any of those things. I didn't even have <laughs> rosters the first day of school. And so 
the conversation about I'm having a panic attack just thinking about that right now, Sandra. I'm yeah, so sorry. <laughs> it was crazy. I, I had no idea how to plan. And okay, so just a real quick detail among many that there were that that first year. The principal who hired me in the summer vanished over the summer. Like things were so bad that she just stopped coming to work and never said anything to anyone. So the Chicago public system appointed a principal to go in and fill that spot until they could hire someone new. And she had no, she didn't care what the mission of the school was or like what what was going on. It was all just like keeping the wheels on the wagon. And so, you know, when I, when I told her like, Hey, I was hired by the last person to start a band program. Um, Here are some resources that I would need to do that. And she said, you will get $0. (laughs) So then like, I didn't have books. I didn't have, you know, mouthpieces. I didn't have recorders. I had nothing, you know, and, uh, and, you know, like that was the biggest well, shock can you, to me. Can that, you just tell me your, so what did you, I mean, sorry, what, I want detail now. So what the heck did I do? Yeah. So you get your key the first day you open it up. She says, you're going to get $0 like, and kids start walking in your room now go. <laughs> so yeah. Um, the initial thing was, how do I just get to know these kids in any way? Like, I want to try and figure out, I mean, the basic assessment thing, right? Yeah. Who are they and where are they coming from? What's the musical experience they've had? And what I found was the majority of my kids had never had any kind of musical education mm-hmm. um, in school. However, many of them had been in church, you know, been involved in church music, Um a little background. I mean, like the the school was on the far west side of Chicago. For anybody who's familiar with the city of Chicago, and um, this was this was when Cabrini Green, the um, notorious housing project, was still standing. It's been torn down now, but a good number of my students lived there. Um, and really, uh, I mean, I would say, you know, I think it was something around. 70% black, 30% Hispanic, maybe 80-20 was the makeup of the school. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely like a strong, and I was surprised, um, the, not only the African-American church uh, music was going on in the community, but I didn't realize that how much overlap, overlap there was with my upbringing from the South. Like I didn't actually know about the <laughs> the migration pattern that happened, you know, like where there's a, there is parts of Chicago just feel like they're in the South. Mm. Well, tell, um, d- tell me more about that. Like, what do you mean migration? Pattern? Um, well, there, I, I was hearing words. I was hearing kids say words that I heard as a kid. And I was like, but we're in a Northern city. Like, well, you know, how do you guys know? Um, You're but then migration you know, started- post slavery, you mean just like people moving North? Like, yeah, well, yes, yes. And then, you know, the patterns that went, throughout like the industrialization mm-hmm. of the Northern cities and yeah, post-slavery basically. Um, but it was so interesting <clears throat> to me how, just how Southern, mm. you know, like the food, right. And the, um, and the language, you know, the way people talk to each other and even like the cultural family norms were so similar to what I had grown up in. That gave me some kind of, I mean, that was the, the number one thing it was like, how do I get to know these kids so I can start somewhere. And then that was really comforting to me because I had some kind of, some kind of common, you know, background. So, um, you know, as small as it was, 
Um, I only had one. And ex- then I just I only had one experience like that in Cleve in Cleveland. I, there was I got hired, you know, because I played steel drums at Akron, and Akron was known for having steel band program, and also a steel drum like education pedagogy was a pedagog pedagogy was a thing. Um, yeah. And I got hired to teach an after school program um, <clears throat> at a school in Cleveland, um, and it was like from four to four forty five, and I would show up. Yeah, the first day I showed up, I was told it was a steel band. There was one lead pan and half of like a set of double seconds. And <laughs> like 15 kids walked in the room. And I had handouts and I was like, and this teacher who looked like a security guard but was a teacher, had a gun on him, like walked in, said things to them I could never imagine any human being just saying any to another human being regardless um, yeah. of whether they were children or whether or misbehaving or not, you know? Um, and then didn't even introduce me, shook my hand and was like, good luck and turn around and then locked the door behind him. Yeah. And I was like, <clears throat> now Grant, I don't, this is probably, I don't know if it's a policy now, but this, and this was like 2002. So like, you know, this is 18, 20 years ago, but I turned around and in that moment, it's like that same thing of like, Oh man, what, what do I do here? And I, I made, I did the sort of like classroom management thing. I handed out my, handed out my, my sheets. Right. And this one kid very calmly just didn't say a peep. No, no, not aggressive. Anything just calmly walked behind me, picking them all up and threw them right out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like a worksheet on the history of Trinidad and the history of like, (laughs) I, it was like the history of slavery migration from the Caribbean up to like, you know, and how that affected the steel drum development, blah, you know, history of World War Two and FDR. I was just like, like, yeah, this guy, like, I'm going to come. Yeah. yeah. And this kid just <laughs> threw him right out the window. And it was like, yeah. and then, but then it was like, okay, this, how, get, trying to get to know them, trying to build trust and trying to build empathy or trying to, using empathy as this, like, wedge to sort of find an opening and get to know. And it was like, by the third time I came back and I just kept handing out the things and the kid kept throwing them away. The fourth time he didn't do it anymore. And it was like, I had proved, it was like, all I had to do was just do it three times. And they're like, yeah, they're like, cool. You know, Mr. Josh is going to, he, you know, he's, he's one of us now. And it was like, after that fourth time, I had like the best time. Like it was the, I could not wait to get in that room. I stopped handing out handouts, but you know, yeah, you know, but it, it was um, <laughs> just a waste of paper. Yeah. But it was phenomenal to me that this was a public school. This is like mm-hmm. the government was sanctioning the way this school ran. And I grew up in a public school that was not that way. It had its problems, but I was like, Oh my God, the other side of the tracks goes to school like this. Well, that was the, you know? that was the, basically you know what i was getting at too it was just this like things that even things that are just accepted as being normal like of course when you go to school you're going to know what class you're going to Mm -hmm. of course when you're a teacher in a school you know which students you're going to have you know like i was legitimately just writing down the names of the kids who showed up every day and i didn't know if they were supposed to be i didn't you know that's the thing it's like so such basic survival needs are literally not being met. Now that's, you know, I've definitely had different experiences in Mm -hmm. other urban schools, but that's a thing that happened, you know, that does happen. And I should say, I also had gotten some chops um, 
I had to substitute teach for a few months while, while my certificate, you know, was being processed mm-hmm. by the state. And so I did some subbing in Chicago public schools too, which was a good way to get some chops, you oh, know, in man. front of a group of kids. Um, Everybody, every that, human being should be forced to, to substitute teach a science class. Just once. Like, <laughs> yeah. And here's the, here's the thing. Here's what here's, – we'll make it easy for you, which is what a substituting is. You walk in. Literally, they give you everything you need to do, oftentimes written out so you can just read it and hand it out, right? Yeah. I had this. I did the same thing. I walked in. It was a science class. And I, w- I just started reading it out. And at the end, I was just like, now get out your textbooks and turn to page 232 and read to two, page 247. And in the back of the room, I just heard, nope. <laughs> 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 and I was like – Please, he's like, nope, and he just put his headphones yeah. on and went right back to sleep. And like, that's an important thing as a human being to just have someone completely deny you your authority to your face. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and to have a whole group of people completely deny. You. Right, I mean, right. you're fortunate. You're fortunate that you went into classes where there were materials provided for you because almost yeah. every time that's not what i was getting yeah. um i remember my first day my very first day um th- uh they told me on the way to my they're like you're going to be in this room um i had no you know idea what i didn't even know what the subject was um but i they said there's a security button so if anything goes wrong you just push that button which was like i didn't that was another what you know moment for me security so but I was in a I was in a special ed class that was behavioral disorder students with no plans, and um, I mean they were trying to kill each other. Like <laughs> they were really like, it, I was having to like pull kids off of each other. And Sandra, and I, just I'm just going to say something that I think is objectively true. You are not a huge person. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how I don't know how else to put it, but I think if I if I could get a hold of you, I bet I could throw you a good forty feet. <laughs> well, I am I am my brother calls me spindly, so <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I have a um, I'm five ten, so I'm tall, but mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's stretched out over a long distance. Um, <laughs> I'm not. In other words, I am not the person to be pulling teenagers. Right off of each other. Um, but I pushed that security button at one point. because I was like, these kids are going to kill each other in here. And nobody came there. I mean, like nobody ever came. I was pushing that button for like 20 minutes. It's just a, it's like that Um, morphine drip button they give you in the hospital. Like there's nothing there. Yeah. It's It's just a placebo. placebo. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, yeah, just like basic survival, but that, that speaks so much about the environment that these kids are walking into, you know, where it goes way beyond good pedagogy. It goes way beyond like emotional support. We're talking about simple survival is not a guarantee. And I don't mean that in the literal sense where it's like, you might die. What, you know, it's like the basic infrastructure that's necessary to begin to develop an educational plan is so you just can't count on it in, in a lot of these schools. And, um, yeah, that was just, well, uh, you know, crazy to me. Let me ask and, you, and then I get, no, please go ahead. Go ahead. Well, well, the other big, I do remember that year, the other major sort of, I don't know, kick in the gut about what, uh, you know, the American public education system can be 
for certain kids was that I had, um, I had this one girl, Natasha was her name. And she, she was just, she instantly, she was super interested in music and she was an amazing singer and she was such a great student. And I can remember her, like when the first report cards came out, she sort of like had to hide her good grades from her family because there was this sort of like, what do you think you're better than me? You, what are you going to go to college? You know, going on in her family. And I just like blue, you know, breaking your heart is just cracking the surface. Like the idea that you wouldn't be expected to succeed is sad enough, but then that you would be expected to fail and because sh- if you succeed, you're different and possibly that shamed like, and possibly shamed for succeeding. Like, yeah, which is like that. It's a point of contention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was just like so eye-opening to me. And of course it made me want to be involved even more. Like, oh my God, I thought this thing was broken. You know, like things were broken that I wanted to fix. I had no idea how yeah. broken things were. So, you know, I you were gonna say well, something a minute ago. I was just ago. gonna ask so I mean, one of the things that um <clears throat> uh, the anxiety I I have around these times right now, again, it's like I, I keep saying this and I, I hope people take it for what I mean it to be. Um, like, you know, I, I don't know if you've been through any talk therapy. I've been through a bit. Um, and the sort of therapy one-on-one is your feelings aren't proof of anything, right? Like, right. Like they're proof that you have, you have a feeling, but it's not necessarily proof that the data backs it up on the other end. Right. And totally. so for me, I try, I'm trying, I've been trying real, especially now during this time of like national trauma, not just in terms of racial relations, but there's a pandemic going on. People are dying. Old people are terrified. My wife is a pastor and she's terrified about having her first service back because she doesn't want to be responsible. Like there's all these horrible consequences. People are having to play on their heads because we're indoors and there's some, you know, something outside terrifying us. Um, I've been trying real hard to be like, I want to get past the fear stage and start talking about what it is. What do we, what are the things I know I can actually turn? What screw can I turn? That's going to move the whole ship one centimeter in the right direction. Right. Um, And so for you, like what, what are the solutions? What are the things like when I think about when I think about, let's pick something. um, It's not silly at all, but something very specific, like gender disparity in the percussion section. Just, yeah. Or the tuba section. Okay. Sure. Um, I have been confused by a lot of the arguments around, like, you know, like be, it being this inherent, like, this is a boy's instrument, this is a girl's instrument, that there's some, there's somebody in between sort of actively saying girls shouldn't play this instrument, boys should play that, you know, that sort of thing. Cause I never heard that discussion when I was growing up. I mean, I'm a boy, so I'm a, trying to admit my, my privileges where they were, but I was raised by, you know, my teacher was a woman, she was a drummer, you know, like what, what, what are the issues? And then I stopped to think like, I had a hell of a time. Okay. So let's not, that's not to discount that there aren't real assholes in the system who do do stupid shit like that. Mm -hmm. I could barely carry that snare drum around. Now there's probably (laughs) a reason why Sandra Donzi as a fifth grader didn't gravitate towards the snare drum. It doesn't, I'm not implying that Sandra's weak or any of that. What if we took all of the, what if we just took the physical burden of playing a tuba out of it? And we said, let's invest. If we can find $3 trillion to just shit out all over the economy. What if we found 
couple hundred million, and we just bought two sets of every instrument. So one set could be at home, one set could be at the school. And then kids oh, don't yeah. have to carry shit around. Like yep. all I mean, of a sudden, like the the if a girl wants to play drum set from fifth grade, we got two. It's fine. We'll yeah. figure it out. Like that that is that to me. Yeah, is that hard to figure out? Yeah. Is it? Will it take money? Sure. But that like that. But but again, it's like that's a seed. Like I would be curious to find a pilot school and be like, we're gonna do this. But I'm sorry, you're not gonna see the results in drum corps and in the music education world for another twenty years. But you exactly. gotta, you gotta trust me. This is going to at least tease out some of the knots of this problem, right? You know. So for you, what are those? Yep. So, what are what are tangible solutions for you? Well, I think, gosh. So you're right in the when kids see themselves in the role that they want to be in, that makes it you know so much more achievable, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure that you probably had, on average, however you would compare the data a good healthy amount of girl you know percussionists but no no but actually. you didn't no i mean okay. we we had we had i think there were two or three in the marching band uh in, in the percussion section at the time they played cymbals i thought cymbals are bass drum um and then in concert band it was they always played the glockenspiel part because this dummy couldn't read music not only couldn't just <laughs> didn't like i was just like nah. i was the guy that was like nope I'm going to play bass drum. Gotcha. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it's just like, give the bell, give the bell part to, uh, you know, to miss Missy, you know, it was just like, uh, but, but it's like my teacher there, was a woman. So it's like, I, I can't say that this was like, she was going out of her way to despair it, you know, to, to exclude women from the program. It's like, so it's, it's gotta be a little bit of something else, you know? Well, yeah, there, there is a cultural thing there. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I had, so I used to work in, when I started teaching in Brooklyn, I became friends with this middle school director who was in the neighborhood. And he asked me to come and help him run his sixth grade band program in the summer. So I went there and he had done all the instrument assignments before. So he had done like a written test with kids to get them into his program. Mm -hmm. And then they, he had already determined these are the kids playing, you know, trumpet and flute. And he had, and I asked him, how do you determine, why are there no girls in the brass section? You know? And he, you know, I was like, do none of these kids want to play? And he's like, I don't let the girls play brass instruments because all of the kids will be so relentless in making fun of that kid. He's like, I just don't want to deal with that anymore. Well, I mean, Mm. I'm not saying that he's excused because he's, you know, at the end of the day, he's facilitating that Um, or he was. But it is. But the point is, like, I guess my my overarching point is that it's like it's just a slightly messier problem than than this person is a bad bigot because they made this call. Now. Would, he I, was trying to protect kids from getting picked on, right? right. I mean, and he, it's easy and to be. By mon- the way, go ahead. Well, by the way, um, after a couple of years of working with this guy, I got him to open up, and then it, and now he has this just like factory. I mean, he has he has an incredible music program anyway. But now there's just endless, you know, kids playing whatever instrument they want, you know, and yeah. and obviously over like ten years, he kind of like killed that that yeah, that just, cultural expectation that was going on in the building it and it does it's a long slow process yeah. well, right? how, and how that's do you what con- you're getting at how do you convince people though i mean this is my this is my biggest point of anxiety i think is like the answers are easy but it doesn't seem like anybody's really willing to just wait well you know and 
Okay, so if I can um, zoom out a little bit to larger cultural issues. Yeah. And having lived in some other countries, I think, um, well, I've lived in one other country. Um, but I think um, as a culture, Americans are really bad at delayed gratification. Mm. And I mean that not just on an individual level. I mean, like, as a culture, we don't, we don't build things to last. We don't build roads to last. We don't build healthcare systems to last. We, you know, like we have such a sort of like ad hoc reactionary way of developing. And I guess, you know, this is like, this goes back to the roots of our country, which is sort of like settling a frontier. We're babies in terms of mm-hmm. world, you know, s- governmental states in the world, you know. But I think, um, that is where this comes from, where the idea is we're going to do this now and we're going to see the results of it in a generation or two generations. And I think you can find manifestations of that lack of ability to delay gratification in pretty much any sector you want. Um, Look, if you're asking me like, what's my easiest fix to not only getting like more girl percussionists and more, you know, uh, orchestra conductors of color and you know like whatever pick a position i think all of it starts from hey why don't we actually desegregate the schools for once like we've never done that mm-hmm. you know 1954 brown versus board of education and we spent about 15 to 20 years depending on what part of the country you look at busing and you know sort of like forcing the segregate the desegregation integration of schools mm-hmm. and then Little by little, communities around the country have just whittled away at, the, you know, like wherever schools get too integrated, you find these communities are like rezoning or reincorporating and it's segregation by a different name. Um, I also, I also, at the same time, you're competing, you're competing with real estate right. law, right? You have to consider redlining. You have to consider, you know, all of the development that went on during the, um, you know, post-World War II era. So, you know, like we still just live in very compartmentalized communities. Um, I don't teach in an, in a diverse school. Um, you know, I'm the white person in the room and I always have been. And we don't, we're not learning from each other when we aren't growing up together, when yeah. we are in a community together. And so those are, I think th- that's all sort of like where it begins. It's like, we actually really, if we desegregated the schools, we would see so much more equality societally, you know, like across the board. Um, yeah. And I, I think too, I but, mean, one, one of the, th- sorry, go ahead. Well, that, that means you're going to have to force people to move. You're going to have to force people to live in places that, you know, we're, I think inherently humans are kind of tribal, right? We want to find people who are like us and, and ha- share. And as long as we continue to be segregated the way we are as a community, as communities, it's the less we are experiencing that. And, you know, what the more we're, exp- you know, just in a loop. Yeah. I'm curious. Um, I mean, to me, um, I think if I had to, it's the same, like I get, I understand the desire to like change names on buildings. I think it is important symbolism. I get it. I totally get it. I can empathize with that desire, Mm -hmm. but I feel like I, you know, to me, I keep coming back, like you said, to like, well, if we want the tree to look different, you have to start at the roots and the roots are kindergarten. 
and why they're way in the and ground this man. is this is yeah. not and this is not a like this is maybe a bad analogy but you know i'm not a jujitsu i'm not a practicer of jujitsu i've i've had like four classes <laughs> and had my ass handed to me but one of the <laughs> one of the things that struck me about that and strikes me about martial arts just as a as an aside here like and why i think this is applicable to my teaching style and i think yours too um you're taught from the first day by a black belt. You're not taught by the belt above you. You're not taught right. by you're not taught by the person who's only five feet ahead of you. It's like I'm going to learn how to run sprints, and my first teacher in first grade is Usain Bolt. Right. You know, <laughs> and it was really odd because he took real pride in pointing me in the right direction from day one with like the scalpel he's sharpened for 40 years. He's like, this yeah. is how you cut. And I was like, and it was re- and it really gave me this sense of like, Oh, here's that. This is what I don't know. Right. And in a sense, it kind of scared me off from continuing because I was like, I got 15 Hills I need to climb right now. And that one's way bigger than I thought. So I'm going to put that on hold. I'm going to put my gi in the closet and I'll come back to yeah. it when I, when I get time. But why do we, why do we only allow students access to the black belts in our field when they get to Yale? Why are they not? Yeah. Why don't we flip that script? I see systemic oppression all the time. You know, I here's a. This is going to sound weird. I'm guilty. I, I'm a victim of it. You know why? You know why I didn't go get my doctorate? You know why I'll never teach as a full time tenured track professor at a university, not even like Idaho Community College? I don't have my doctorate. Because right. it was too expensive, and I didn't have the time. And I'm a white guy who went to Yale, <clears throat> you know? Yeah. So yeah. If, if we – let's change all the names on the buildings. But if we don't change what the accreditation standards are at universities, then you're never going to have people – people are not going to make it to the top of that system if it costs $400,000. Yeah, And you're exactly. not guaranteed a job. And, and – if we're training people to teach fifth graders and we're only training them to basically be five steps ahead of those fifth graders, it's not hurtful. But right. those chickens come home to roost 20 years later and we're seeing it now. Right. And I'm just I'm, – I'm very – I don't know how to do it. <laughs> I just feel like if, if we could require <clears> if, – if it was required to have a doctorate to teach fifth grade band – yeah, it would put the stress like the educational system and colleges and all that stuff would look a lot different. It would be harder. It'd be harder to run a music education program that way because you couldn't just be mm. like you had one flute methods class, you're good to go. Like, yeah, you have to think about stuff slightly differently. But well, yeah, I agree with that. I think that um, I definitely. So this has been part of my mission too is to try and take on teacher preparation programs, because I definitely feel like I love Ohio state. I loved the degree I got there. Mm -hmm. It did not prepare me for the particular type of education that I went into. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that all of the kids who went to Gahanna or Pickerington or any of the suburban programs around the state of Ohio, I'm sure they felt like they had what they needed. Nobody like I had no idea that I would have zero dollars and no rosters. So like preparing kids that that may happen would be helpful. You know, um, you're, you're saying changing. I think you're absolutely right. 
we need to be doing a better job of training um, teachers. But we also, like you're saying, let's get, you got to have a doctor to teach fifth grade band. Let's get fifth grade band. Like, let's even have fifth grade band. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, that's a... <laughs> Would, which would be cool. I'm glad I had because you here, Sandra, because I'm talking to, I'm talking pie in the sky and you're like, well, let's just have a band. <laughs> yeah. Can we? Um, we'll hold we off on the doctorate requirement for fifth grade band directors. Let's just start with a band. <laughs> yeah. we lo- A pie sounds great. Does anyone have any flour? You know? <laughs> um, so, so I'm I miss trying you so to much, find Sandra. the flour. I miss you so much. <laughs> uh, I'm working on finding the flour. Yeah. Um, uh, so th- this is so this is where it's taken me. Like I did a co- you know a couple years in Chicago public schools. Um, my husband ended up getting a job in New York City. You know he was asked to move um, with a merger and talk about like existing in two different worlds, right? Like I'm teaching urban public high school and he's working in finance, international finance. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, anyway. We got to New York. Uh, it was like, sure, we'll give it a shot, see how it goes. Um, I applied for a job where there had been a uh, a program started a year before. The principal really believed that there should be a music program. And so, yeah, oh, there was a teacher there, and she was getting ready to go to do her master's at Queens College. And so I was hired along with another person at the same time, uh, Jeff Ball, and the two of us basically just said, look, we're going to build this thing till, you know, the sky's the limit. And, um, because we had something, we had rosters and we even had some instruments. Like there were a handful of instruments at the time. And, um, we just, we've just grown and grown and grown. So we just finished year 14 or year 15. You know, this COVID thing has really made time take on a different meaning. Um, but we ended up, we still teach the majority of our program is ninth grade beginner band. I mean, more than 90% of our students at ninth grade are beginners. Mm-hmm. So our entire model is a four-year structure because we just can't count on the fact that kids are getting fifth or sixth or seventh or eighth grade anything. I'm not even just talking about instrumental music. I mean, chorus, general, anything. Um, there's no, and how do you, so how do you fix that, right? Well, we could mandate music, right? Music is mandated by the state of New York in all of these schools. Mm-hmm. But there are ways that schools can get around it. Well, why do they get around it? Because of budget. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you're, there's, there's like testing requirements and there's um, standards that the principal has to meet with scores. And right. at the end of the day, it's like our math scores are dropping. We can't afford a music teacher we need to get extra tutoring, you know, whatever it is. It's not that there's somebody, some evil genius going, we will kill all of the music. You know, it's so deep. It's systemic, right? That, um, in the parlance of our times, it is a systemic (laughs) issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's really like there just legitimately aren't enough resources and, um, it makes for difficult choices. And of course, you know, there's plenty of research to show that without those resources, you don't do as good of a job, which makes you need more resources, right? Mm-hmm. And and then, so, <clears throat> again, I think if you really go to some roots of true integration, true um, desegregation in schools, 
you know, if you have a true mixture of communities in a school, you're going to have the haves be able to help and carry the have nots so that we can, you know, mm-hmm. move along through the course of a generation to then have some equal opportunities. Um, yeah, I'm really proud of what we've been doing. The, my school is called the Grand Street Campus. And so I'm really you cut out there for a second. Say it one more time. Doing, you cut out for a second. Um, say it one more time. So my school is called the Grand Street Campus. Mm-hmm. And I'm really proud of what we've been able to do um, to offer kids opportunities in such a short amount of time. Um, I think that what we've been doing is like a kind of aligning of stars. Mm. I do try to spread the gospel that, you know, if me and the team that I'm part of can accomplish this, really what you need is a lot of determination. And we, we try all the time to, to show people, to show young teachers, you know, in every way to like, this can be done, like go out and do it, go out and start these programs like we have, but it involves all kinds of, you know, tiny little bits and pieces. There's, you know, there's the community bands that we've founded, which serve our students when they graduate. So we have adult music making going on. Um, and you commission music through that band as well. Like, which yeah, is also that, a part of the process that I didn't even get to until real late. So the idea that young students are just even know what a commission is like, that's, yeah. that's kind of awesome. Totally. Because what it's done is the community band has allowed us to bring in, like anytime the community band commissions a piece of music, we always mandate that there's some kind of a tie-in with our school program. Mm -hmm. So the composer comes and works with our students or even this last one we did with Akash Mittal. um, He, we had him write, you know, he wrote a grade four, grade five piece for the adult group. Mm -hmm. We had him write a, a, a grade one and a half version of that same piece. That's cool. Um, And, you know, like we're using that as a way to do some, accomplish some other goals, which is music by diverse composers. Mm. Right. Um, That piece was actually an Indian Raga. And there are a lot of kids from in New York city public schools who are, they're not in my school, but they're in some of the middle schools that we've worked with kids from Bangladesh, kids from Pakistan, from India, mm-hmm. they never, when they're in school band, they never play a raga. They've, mm-hmm. you know, like think, John think Phillips, of all the, John Philip Sousa wasn't a big raga guy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, like to be able to play the music that is of their culture um, by someone who is, he's an Indian American guy who mm-hmm. spent years in India and has been really working at trying to translate this type of music into a band instrumentation. Mm-hmm. It's been a real process for him. Yeah. And so again, like these are all the things that need to be happening, showing, showing the job of composers, but showing, you know, playing music by composers that look like the kids that are playing it. Um, you know, the recruitment aspect, like getting out into middle schools and mm-hmm. trying to encourage, <clears throat> we always have student teachers from colleges, like always, you know, to just try and foster, you know, and the young ones, the teachers to actually prepare them. Um, we've developed this modern band program now, um, which is sort of like was our answer to general music. So even if a student gets into a music class, um, if, if they don't elect to take a band class, they get put into general music, which is still a performing ensemble yeah. in our school. Um, so it's like, yeah, I'm just kind of like well, going no, and I and I rough. think 
to, to toss on top of the pile for folks who are feeling like you want to, you know, how do you engage with the system to change it? It means also going yeah. to budget meetings. It means going to like, even if they, even if it's like an open to the public and you may not <laughs> have a say in what's happening, like just go yeah. and hear how that process happens. Identify who in the room is clear to you. It's like, oh, I know who that is. I, I've seen that person at the grocery store, and they're a huge fan of steel bands. I didn't realize that. You know, like that. Then you can take that person out for coffee, talk to them, get to know them. Like people who run grant programs, they'll return your emails. You know, like you can. T- there's a person yeah, on the yeah. other end of that. If you're looking for funding for your program and you need twenty five hundred bucks to buy like thirty five new clarinets. There's a human being on the other end that you can talk to, and it's like it's like all of that little stuff gets lost in this sort of like chaos of change, and and I think I I really I don't go to those meetings as often as I should, you know, mm-hmm. and and it's like those are where the decisions get made. If you're worried, if you're upset that your orchestra at your school has all this huge PR budget to take people on tour, but your African drumming ensemble has to scrape pennies together just to make photocopies <laughs> to let people know about your yeah. concert. That I, I feel like my response isn't to say that we should burn down the orchestra program and Beethoven stinks. It's that we should, I should go to that budget meeting and just raise my hand and be like, can we put 50 bucks over here? <laughs> you know, yeah, like if exactly. you want diversity in your programs, maybe people should come to the African drumming ensemble and understand that that's happening, you know? Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a multifaceted approach. And um, well, can you give me the website? Um, it's the Grand Street campus. Is there is there a website if folks wanted to learn more about you or sort of your program and that what you're doing? Where could folks go? So this is one of the things that's a little bit complex. Um, <laughs> we actually our campus has three schools in it, mm. um, and that is a whole that's a whole conversation in itself. Um, but each one of those schools has their own website. Okay. So I can give you three whip websites. Do it. Um, Do it. <clears throat> you want them right now? Rattle them off if you got them. All right. All right. So there's the High School for Enterprise Business and Technology, which is ebtbrooklyn.com. Mm-hmm. Let me just double check that I, I'm not leaving out like a number or something. Um, yeah. So ebtbrooklyn.com. Mm-hmm. There's um, the East Williamsburg Scholars Academy, um, which is, I think, USA.org, but I have to double check that as I'm speaking to you. Um, You're doing great. You're killing it. Then there's, um, yeah, here we go. It's OSUMB.com. That's it. (laughs) Tabittle.com. Um, yeah, where's this? I'm sorry. And then the progress high school Mm -hmm. for professional careers, which is progress hs.com. Okay. I mean, these are, I mean, the, uh, there's no way Sandra, and this is the thing that bums me out about podcasts. It like, I, this has been an amazing conversation and you and I should just get together and make fun of me for being fat and breaking your chair. I owe you like 75 bucks for that anyway, but (laughs) I feel like. Um, there's no way that you know you and I can solve all of the issues around um, what's going on, uh, with, especially with education. But I think for anybody listening um, who maybe – I think if I was a student who was in music education right now and had to do my second year on Zoom and was thinking about like, do I want to do this? I, I really recommend they listen to this podcast and hear you talk about your – you know, I think what we would affectionately in the moment call a horror story, but are actually things that change your entire worldview 
for the better in the yeah. long run. I mean, the initial, this is when I, I sort of talk about this friction. I feel a lot of people are afraid of that friction and are actively working to, to avoid it. I think it's fair to say, yeah, good. I mean, yes, avoid pain in your life if you can, but pain is a good, te- it's like one of the best teachers. And that sort of like when your worldview butts up against the world and you have to, it hurts to molt and change and become a different version, but usually it's for the better, usually. Um, and I, th- yeah. I think young students can take a lot of inspiration from you. I have, and I'm not even a band director, um, yeah. <laughs> Sandra. So um, I would love to have you back on the podcast so folks can get to know you better. But you're, you're a busy woman, so I will leave. The door's always open. If you want to come on in, just give me a holler. You're so awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I tell my kids all the time, I learn a lot more from them than they learn from me. Uh-huh. But I really cannot think of a better job in the world. You know, like at the end of the day, it's a lot of work, but I get to make music with kids all day. Mm -hmm. Like that's my job. That's what I get paid to do. Um, I don't get paid that much, but I do get paid enough to feed my children. Um, I will just end by saying um, Josh's story about that chair is only partially true. Um, He did break the chair, but that chair was, it was, uh, it was a bad chair to begin with. Um, but it so, is true that I did just sort of bow and leave the party pretty, pretty quickly. It did shred <laughs> under, it did shred under your body. I'm not going to lie about that. Uh. It was more <laughs> dust than splinters when I was done with it. <laughs> Paul pulverized. All right. On that note, <laughs> Hey, Sandra, tell your family I said, You're, Hey, I love you dearly. And I, we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. I love you too, man. Thanks so much for having me on. All right. See ya. Bye. Bye. Okay, thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Liquid Drum, liquidrum.com, L-I-Q-U-I-D-R-U-M.com down in Waco, Texas. Hilarious percussion videos, great merch, great education. Check them out. Also, Dunleavy Steel Pans. Kyle Dunleavy makes and builds all the pans I play on, steel pans, D-U-N-L-E-A-V-Y pans.com. And finally, if you want to learn about uh, steel pans in general, advocacy, learn about uh, what's happening in the pan world in Brooklyn, check out paninmotion.com. Okay, hope you're doing well. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.